going on, guys? Adam Comero here with the Duke Basketball Corner podcast, and we are still, I'm kind of just still speechless from what went on in the second round. It's probably the most insane second round game I've seen in Coach K's career at Duke. And I thought it would just be almost necessary to bring someone who was there who kind of take us through the event. So I have uh, Duke and ACC beat reporter Brant Wilkerson New, who grew up in Durham, just like Aubrey Dawkins. So I'm guessing, Brant, that it was pretty surreal watching Coach K take on the guy who calls him his mentor. I mean, you watched him, I'm guessing, at least somewhat as Kay's right-hand band for so many years. I'm, I'm talking about Johnny Dawkins next to Kay on the sidelines. Never mind the fact that he's the player who basically started the program's rise when he signed on the dotted line with Kay. I mean, he's still the second-leading scorer in Duke's history, so impactful for recruiting, and just he means so much. That's why before they played, I was saying it was kind of – bittersweet in a way so uh what was your ex- what how did you feel just before we go over the game just as a on a personal level since you did grow up in durham watching that go on and just take us through some of what uh the emotions were after that game and obviously well let me just say that i, I am sure that everyone knows but duke beat central florida by the score of 77 76 and basically an almost repeat ending of Wake Forest, except the shot would have counted this time if it had gone down. So let me now hand it to you, Brant, and thank you for joining me. No problem, man. Thanks to uh, thanks for reaching out to me. It's Yeah, like you said, it's still kind of uh, just a feeling of shock after that game. Um, I sat in my seat after after it ended instead of, you know, getting up and running back to the media room and getting ready for locker room. I just kind of sat there staring for a few, few, for a few minutes. Like in awe of what we had just kind of experienced, uh, you know, Aubrey Dawkins was, as uh, Mike Krzyzewski said, he was the best player on the floor. And, uh, you know, just just two kids from Durham uh, sit on, uh, in the arena last night. He obviously uh, achieved his dream of becoming a college basketball player, and uh, I didn't quite get there. But, uh, yeah, it was it was incredibly cool to see, um, you know, going into the game. That was obviously the biggest storyline and um, saw a number of stories out there and. I I was fortunate enough to get Jay Billis on the phone briefly on Saturday afternoon. He's always like so gracious with his time. If you text him, he will get with you in minutes. So that's a really cool thing. But, um, you know, I just kind of asked his opinion of, you know, is, has there been a more impactful player in Duke history? And you think about all of the good players and great players and hall of famers to come through Duke, but um, none, none stands above Johnny Dawkins. And Jay Billis said just that he said, he's the most important player in Duke basketball history, which is, pretty uh, this is a pretty big compliment and you think about it um i grew up around here my my parents were big time acc basketball fans going back to the early days of dean smith and lefty drizel and you know ralph sampson and all that but the common theme was johnny dawkins was the best player they ever saw that came through this area um aside from david thompson so um you know it, it can't be overstated what johnny dawkins meant to duke basketball so it was, you know, I think you expected that his team would come out ready to fight and they would have a good read on what Duke wants to do, even though the Duke system has changed kind of a bit since he was Kay's right-hand man. But you knew they were going to fight. And I don't know if Aubrey Dawkins had dreams of playing for Duke. I'm sure at some point he did. And 
Um, I know he tried to go to Stanford, but wasn't allowed to get in the school there on an exception, which is insane to me. Um, and he, he made it down to play with his dad at Central Florida. But he played like a guy who was trying to send a message that, hey, I, I you guys should have recruited me. And I think uh, nobody did more for their professional stock than yesterday, than uh, than Aubrey Dawkins did yesterday. And, you know, just seeing that moment after the game when when uh, Mike Krzyzewski and Johnny Dawkins were hugging at midcourt and then the players just kind of littered all over the floor afterward. And, and coach K was hugging several of them while they were just, I mean, it wasn't just tears. It was just open bawling and the videos that you saw from the central Florida locker room and going into the Duke locker room there, it wasn't, I didn't get a sense of like grand celebration that they had won the game. I feel like it was like, Holy crap. We somehow survived that. And it was just a sense of shock in there. Yeah, I mean, I almost got the feeling that Coach K, he almost felt worse for uh, Johnny Dawkins than he did kind of being happy for winning because, I mean, it is sports are great in so many ways, so impactful, so meaningful, but relationships, I mean, that goes beyond. And you could tell in the way he uh, reacted to the result, especially just the way it went down. I mean, you have a guy in Aubrey Dawkins who just – he is just playing out of his mind, as you said. He is that whenever there's a, not whenever, but more often than not, I would say for a big upset, there's usually one player who really kind of carries a team on his back. And Dawkins was that. Obviously, Taco Fall, you can't teach 7-6, but Dawkins was just balling. And then for those last three plays, uh, the uh, kind of the mishandled alley-oop, then the rimmed out long two, and then the 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 miss follow with the buzzer. It's just you want Duke to win, but you don't want Central Florida to lose, especially not that way. So it was rough, and uh, I mean it, it's tough because you have just there's so many human elements at work in a six round single elimination tournament involving 18 to 20 22 year old uh, young men and coaches who have relationships all over. I mean that's why like it's funny with the NCAA. Maybe they're truthful but when they say we don't factor in storylines or narratives and then they have bobby hurley if he wins a a first four game he he goes against nate oates and it's like really so i mean (laughs) it's kind of funny like that but yeah i mean the storylines are just fascinating constantly and that's why coach k goes he said it he's honest that he goes so far out of his way to just avoid ever scheduling um games that uh teams that are coached by an ex-player or uh, ex-assistant. I mean, so I'm wondering, I know this was a while ago, did did you, uh, do you have any memories or do you know anyone who covered the 2001 or 2002 NCAA tournament games with uh, Missouri in 2001, coached by Quinn Snyder, and Mike Bray in 2002, coached by, oh, I'm sorry, Notre Dame, coached by uh, Mike Bray, because those were the two other NCAA tournament games he coached versus uh, Quinn's, obviously, ex-player and ex-assistant. And Mike Bray, ex-assistant. Yeah, um, I did not. Uh, unfortunately, I was, uh, I think I was, geez, I was 15 at the time. But I remember that game against Quinn Snyder's Missouri team. That was like a really big deal, especially here in the Triangle. Game was played just an hour away in Greensboro, and you know Missouri was a really, really up-and-coming program uh, there before um, things kind of fell apart for Quinn there. They had Quinn Snyder, or not Quinn. They had Quinn Snyder, obviously, but uh, yeah, they had Kareem Rush and. Um, they, they had everything that, that looked like the type of team that, that could pull an upset, but it just happened that Duke had the best team in the country that year. So, um, 
I, I don't, I, I remember that watching that game pretty vividly. Um, and that was something I brought up to Jay Billis when we were on the phone the other day and just what, what his kind of impression was back then of that game. And he said, yeah, it's, uh, he, he was there. So he had talked to Quinn before that game. And it's, it's such an interesting thing to me that uh, coach K does not like to play against his assistants. Cause it's kind of on the exact opposite end of what Roy Williams does here locally. He, he goes out of his way to, to help his assistants out with, with uh, giving them road games. Like next, next year, he's planning to go down to visit my alma mater at UNC Wilmington and, Carolina is going to play in our in our 5,000 seat arena down there, and it's going to be the hottest ticket that's that's ever come through there. So, um, of course, that's during the regular season. So, um, you know, it, it is kind of interesting that these storylines are seem to always pop up, although the NCAA says that they don't try to create them. I mean, let's be honest, they do try to create them. Um, sometimes, I mean, could you argue that maybe sometimes they do it at the expense of seeding things correctly or whatever? Yeah, whatever. But also we get moments like yesterday, and, and that's going to be more unforgettable than, than hey, Duke beat some other eight seed in a, in a crazy game. That just kind of intensifies that. That, that, that adds like a 10 times multiplier to, to what we watched yesterday. Yeah, and I hate to bring it back again, but um, it it is interesting because when, when someone's played under Coach K and then they also were an assistant, I think – Playing under him is something that always sticks out just a little, obviously a little more to uh, fans. And especially since I think that's pretty much all he hires as his assistant coaches now is ex players. And I believe Mike Bray was the last non uh, coach who played under him. So um, do, do you remember the 2002 Notre Dame game? Cause you mentioned Quinn Snyder, but he, they did play Notre Dame. They beat Notre Dame. And uh, I mean, th- I know they have a great relationship. Well, so obviously the Missouri game was more of a big deal in the triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, the Missouri game was definitely bigger. I remember a little bit of that Notre Dame game, but I'm not. It, it seems to strike me that maybe that was around the Chris Thomas era there and Torin Francis when they had first kind of gotten some really good players there. Oh, wow. that, under brings back, that brings back memories. Yeah. Good call. <laughs> but um, yeah, that one, that one doesn't stick out as much, which I guess kind of proves the point of just how rare and, and special it is to see a former Duke player coach his team uh, against the blue doubles in a, in a high stakes game. Um, so yeah. Um, but yeah, Mike Bray is, is and trying to think back now. I, I think he is the last guy on the staff and, I mean, that's kind of a unique relationship. That's another unique thing about it is um, Coach K does only bring in his own guys at this point to, to serve on his staff. And I think, you know, as much as they understand the system and everything, they understand the culture of what Duke wants. And I think it's it's important for you, you talk to the freshmen and they don't always, you know, it's the, the X and O stuff of, of what Duke does is fine and all that. But what they get from him is what the understanding of being a Duke basketball player, which is um, it, it's it's not an easy thing to do when you're the most <laughs> I mean, you're the most scrutinized program in America. And there are certain standards that, that they have you live up to and just kind of living in that spotlight, which is I mean, <laughs> there's always been a spotlight. But the spotlight this season is unlike anything that I've ever seen. And I've only been around it for a few years now. And I've asked the other folks that have been around it for decades, and and they've uh, confirmed that. It, I mean, it wasn't even like this back in the Leitner Hurley Grand Hill era. In terms of Johnny Dawkins, just his character. I'm not saying others would have done the opposite, but you have a guy like Nolan Smith 
who was very close to Johnny Dawkins. Johnny Dawkins knew Nolan's late father, played an NBA with him, and Nolan was having a rough go of it in his first two years at Duke. And when Johnny Dawkins uh, took the job at Stanford, Nolan Smith actually, from what I read, from what I've heard, he was he wanted to go with Johnny Dawkins, and Dawkins would not let him. He said, no, you made a promise to Coach K. you got to man up and keep that promise. And we all know how that turned out extremely well. But it just goes to show, and I, again, I'm not saying other coaches would have kind of taken him with him, but it's just, I, I think it was a sort of loyalty and just basic character of Johnny Dawkins who makes him who he is. And just a really, really great guy. Then you have another topic in terms of related to uh, Duke and Central Florida in the in their turnaround. They hadn't made the NCAA tournament, I believe, since 2005. This was their first win. And a big part of that is Danny White now, the athletic director at UCF. And as some might know, Kevin White is the AD at Duke. So that was kind of an aside. I don't, I don't know if that was mentioned at all. Did you hear anything about that? Or was that made to be, I mean, obviously the players and the coaches are going to be the story. But uh, did you notice that at all? Anyone talking about it? Um, no, that was kind of a, a secondary storyline. But I did see on Twitter after the game, someone had kind of made the joke, hey, uh, Central Florida, somebody have the AD get in touch with the Duke AD and schedule a home and home now and start a good series. So, um, no, I think that that would be fantastic, obviously. But um, I, I highly doubt that Duke will want to do that. Um, but, yeah, going back to what you were saying about Johnny Dawkins' character is, you know, as tough as, as this might be for Coach K and Duke fans to have a kind of bittersweet uh, taste after knocking his team out. And obviously, you know, if that team got through Duke, uh, I mean, if they play that way for the next uh, the next weekend, they would be in the final four, obviously. But um, I think the, the good thing that comes out of this when you're looking at this from the Duke perspective is like what a moment for Johnny Dawkins and who he is as a man and what he's done with that program in a very short amount of time. So I know I've seen his name mentioned for a couple of other uh, power five jobs. I don't I don't know that he would leave. I don't know why why he would leave. I think he's got a pretty good thing going there. And um, UCF is a program that's kind of on the rise as an athletic department and They've really committed money to to athletics, and obviously they got an athletic director with pretty big aspirations uh, under his father. So I think this is a it's a good moment for Johnny Dawkins to to get some publicity for his program. And you know I think uh, as much as the loss sucks for them, they're they're going to come out of this just fine. I mean Aubrey Dawkins is going to be kind of viewed as a star next year in the AAC, and uh, you know they might lose some they might lose a little ground as far as not having taco fall in the middle. who is just an absolute game changer, but you know, they're, they're going to be right there at the top of the league or, uh, with Cincinnati and Houston again. Okay. And the last, uh, is kind of uh, storyline aside from the game. And then we'll get into it is Duke was back in South Carolina, obviously 90 minutes away from where they played in 2017 and got stuck with uh, South Carolina, almost like in a home game, uh, the university of South Carolina, but it's also where Zion is from, so it's kind of an, uh, pretty intriguing there. And it was a pretty interesting location. I mean, Virginia, they were down at the half, uh, I believe, in their first round game. And then Duke obviously had their struggles, even for a time with North Dakota State. Did you – I mean, I had heard it was just going to be Zion mania. And obviously he had some sort of camera on him. Did you notice the fans that he had a lot of kind of hometown fans come to watch him more than might be typical? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, it was it was a hometown crowd for Zion for sure. But I think that's it's kind of become a hometown crowd for Zion anywhere he goes. Like, I, I remember seeing the like uh, some fans were booing him on the road during warm up, so he refused to dunk or anything like that. Um, but no, that, that it's kind of been like a, an interesting thing for Zion's become this transcendent Duke players where it, it's so cool to hate Duke and all that, but fans don't boo him when he when he makes a ridiculous play they just kind of sit in awe like during the first round game uh, I was right in front of the North Dakota State section um, and when he had that little run of plays at the start of the second half including that the steal where he poked it ahead ran it down dribbled behind his back lost his balance and then finished it with a lay-in there's not a boo or anybody kind of demanding that they call a foul it was just kind of like oh wow holy crap we're just we are witnessing something right now. So, um, but yeah, it, it was certainly a, a hometown crowd for Zion. Um, it was a really cool building, actually. I was, I was pleasantly surprised with the the atmosphere in there and, and the building. And it's always cool when you get two ACC teams in one place because you know how that's going to go. Is One of them is going to root against Duke and they're going to get in there with the, the underdog and, and help create a, a pretty cool atmosphere. And that gets the Duke fans riled up and they start chanting back and you know, the UCF fans were, were chanting for their team during the second half, and then the Duke fans were trying to go right back at them. So um, it, it really created a cool atmosphere. And I don't know how many people Zion Williamson had there, but uh, I, I would imagine the, the whole family was there. Because I know at one point they had, they had uh, I guess his little brother was up on the board, and I'm not sure if people knew who that was when they put him up on the video board. He was just kind of dancing to one of the songs while his mom and his stepdad were, were sitting there. So. Um, yeah, it was a really cool environment, um, probably created by the fact that everyone has kind of latched on to Zion as this hometown hero and pretty cool moment for South Carolina basketball, having Zion and Ja Moran at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, I think uh, I think Frank Martin did offer Ja Moran and Ja actually chose to go to uh, Murray State. So it was a big get for Murray State, who has um, a good history with point guards. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like he was totally under the radar. So, but uh, obviously he's not as known as he is right now. But uh, so the game, obvious. I, I think the biggest thing is kind of it almost reminds me of the first Syracuse game, where Duke hasn't been able to shoot the whole year. Like there is no difference in them now compared to before. There's no difference. Like that's why you, you follow the stats every, all the time, or I, I do. I track the stats. I watch the games, watch the games over and over because I am a weirdo and a nerd, and <laughs> just kind of break everything down to see what is happening, why it's happening, and then others kind of react in the national media. You don't see it all the time, or maybe they do. They're just not processing, and all of a sudden they realize something that's been obvious the whole time, perfect example is still people think that like the Sir- the first Syracuse game it was a perfect storm I mean you have to look at it honestly and see all the factors that came together obviously Duke still did miss a ton of shots they chucked but at that time they were coming they were traveling back from Florida State a highly emotional game Saturday to Monday they lost uh, Cam they expected to have Cam Reddish all of a sudden they didn't Trey they expected to have they didn't career high minutes from Alex O'Connell, uh, Bolden, everyone, pretty much everyone who played besides Javin. I, like, you have Jack White playing like 40 minutes. And I, I remember that R.J. Barrett, he was shooting 50% a couple minutes into the second half. He ended up like 
the rest of the game, two for 17. Uh, Zion missed a free throw that could have won it with like 15 seconds left. There was just a, a zone the first time going against the zone for these freshmen. There's just a lot of context involved. And it's not excuses. It's just what I think is necessary context. Then after the next day, I'm reading all these articles. Duke, does, they're not a good shooting team. And I'm just like, <laughs> that's the game you're choosing to kind of pick at, to cherry pick when they haven't been able to shoot the whole year. It's just odd. So this game... I think it's the same kind of deal where, you know what? It was just a perfect storm of a lot of factors. We're starting with, you, you, you wonder why Qs, they, a lot of times they lose either first round or they advance far. And a lot of times their advantage comes on the second game. If they can get past the first game with each week, when teams don't have a chance to prepare for them, short rest, then that zone, it can be rough if, if you don't have that time to prepare the same way. How many seven six guys are there? If you don't have time to prepare for Taco Fall, I mean, I understand. Actually, I thought it was kind of – I always thought that Florida State should have played Chris Kamaji a little more. Uh, it's not the same type of athleticism and mobility and overall skill level as Taco Fall. But at the same time, 7-4 is 7-4. And he was pretty effective. He kind of – I mean, he dunked right on Javin, and that's nothing against Javin, but he's 7-4. I was surprised they didn't play him a little more. But you combine that with the fact that Aubrey Dawkins just, he went crazy. He went absolutely crazy. He basically went Vinny Shahid for two straight halves. And again, there was the unfortunate ending for those last three plays. But you know what? There was just a lot of factors that went into this game that I would say whoever they played, it, it, it could have gone the same way because you also you take that VCU and Duke was pretty much perfect for them. VCU and Duke, they were the two worst shooting teams in the NCAA tournament. You have Central Florida, the best, I think they had the best two-point uh, percentage defense in the tournament. So you kind of, you have these teams who can't shoot and shoot from three way too much, both of them, Duke and VCU. VCU was uh, their best player was injured, so that was unfortunate. They, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. That was, um, let me see here. That was Marcus Evans. So they were kind of, they were short. He was there, but he kind of wasn't there. And yeah. I, it was just, it played right into UCF's hands when, even when um, Taco Fall was out, they were happy to run. It's almost like two different teams with Taco in and Taco out. And it's just, it's hard to prepare for that. And then Duke comes in the same way. And they obviously struggle from deep and they shoot too much from deep. So I think it's just a lot of what the articles are about right now um, and what people are saying. I think it's just, it's a huge outlier. And I'm not taking anything away from UCF. They deserve every bit of it. But Dawkins was on another planet yesterday. And I'd watch plenty of him. That's not how he plays. It was just, as you said, it was that extra motivation almost. So that's why you kind of, you you can analyze basketball and you can analyze human beings. And it ends up, probably you should analyze both. Because both take, or not you should, but both have an impact on the game. So I would say, what were your kind of takeaways in terms of, do you, how big of, uh, the t takeaways and what takeaways should we get out of the second round game versus UCF? I th so that was one of the questions that kind of came up today uh, when I was doing a radio spot is 
somebody said, do you think that Duke is more vulnerable than any point that they've been this season? My response to that is no. Duke is the exact same team coming into that game as they were when they walked off the court stunned that they got the win. I mean, everybody in the world knew exactly who Duke is. I mean, they are a 30% three-point shooting team. They are ranked in the 320s for a reason. They're not consistent. And, you know, the fact that they were able to hit 10 three-pointers yesterday was a big deal. Um, 10 of 25, that's a that's a pretty good percentage. You'd take that for Duke this season. So um, my takeaway is that we didn't really learn anything particularly new about them. They ran into a matchup that just really, really tough for them. Sometimes you get a good matchup in the NCAA tournament. Sometimes you don't. Like, obviously, I'm a, I went to UNCW, so a few years ago when uh, UNCW drew Duke in the first round, I was like, crap. I, I thought we had a team that would be capable of beating uh, a, a lot of different teams at Duke's level, but Duke was just a very bad matchup because of Marshall Plumley. So with that said, yesterday, Taco Fall is able to fill up the lane, and, you know, nobody has been able to stop uh, Zion Williamson or RJ Barrett from getting to the basket because they're just so excellent with their feet. They're so excellent with their body control and RJ Barrett in particular, um, he just finds a way to finish through contact. And that just wasn't a possibility with Taco Fall in there and the way that UCF kind of dropped their guards into the lane. The one thing that was unique, and we've seen a little bit of it with the way that opposing guards play Trey Jones and uh, Jordan Goldwire and LeBron or not LeBron, <laughs> Jesus, uh, that was a, a slip, but Zion on the uh, on the perimeter is that they're going to dare those guys to shoot, and Zion had a great shooting day, and in, instead, when Trey Jones and Jordan Goldwire got the ball out on the perimeter, the UCF players were literally yelling at them to shoot the ball and waving at them and taunting them, so I think, if anything... The only thing that we really learned yesterday, and I, I, you don't you don't know if somebody's going to be as daring to do it without the presence of a seven foot six center, is maybe maybe teams are going to pick their poison because when you think about it, this Duke team has lost one ta- one time at full strength this season, so it's obviously the, that you're going to have to pick your poison with Duke, and the only one that that seems to be a reasonable choice is to just stand back and let them jack up some threes, but. Um, it's also kind of ironic that Duke has lost the game in which they shot the most three-point attempts this season and the game that they shot the fewest against Gonzaga. So um, I'd say that's, that's about it. That, that, there's been a lot of things about the blueprint, but of course that blueprint is only successful because there was a 7-6 guy in the middle who moves around pretty well and blocks shots, and he was the beneficiary of a you know a couple times there was contact that was and wasn't called because it was just a bad day for the officials on both ends, I thought. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Gonzaga, and uh, that that kind of leads to what Duke's, I think, most underrated strength of the season is, their three-point defense. Gonzaga, the Zag shot 50, I think it was like 52 or 53% against Duke. That's the highest any team has shot against them. And UCF, they made uh, nine out of their last 12 from deep against VCU, then came in and made nine of 18 against Duke. So they are doing that against Duke's three-point defense, which is just absurd. I mean, the, the thing with these athletes, they make mistakes. I think everyone makes a little too big a deal out of they, they love each other and there's communication and this is what it's like to play as one. There's tons of mistakes. The film doesn't lie. It's just they're such athletic freaks that they can be, get back and close <laughs> out and make up for their uh, errors and miscommunication at times. Just It's, it's insane. 
So I think the biggest thing I take away is that I want to know if it's going to be a trend that they're not going to be able to force live ball turnovers. Because I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that UCF was really taking care of the ball the same way that North Dakota State was taking care of the ball. And Duke, they they got, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, but they kind of got almost, uh, they really, it seemed like they were more urgent. They used the zone press with uh, Goldwire. But when you do that, obviously you're going to give up more angles. So when a team can go over the top of that zone, then you're going to have an open three-point shooter right there because UCF, that wasn't the type of team that can create off the dribble. They were just getting uh, passes, uh, long passes from Duke's press, and then they were able to hit threes. And then once a team starts being able to gain confidence, a team that was the underdog, then it's almost like all strategy might be going out the window. Then it's just single elimination, let's go. So, yeah, I mean, there is a risk when you do extend that trapping defense. That's why I think uh, that UCF, they were smart to cut the zone out of their own defense from the first half because they extended the zone. That gives up angles, and it also allows potentially more offensive rebounds. So they did play a man, but also Taco Fall, I don't know what to think about the no three-second violation in college. He just can kind of just stand around underneath the basket. So I, I think there's just, again, it's different factors which all of a sudden can gain momentum in a game, and then who knows what will happen. But the bottom line is when you break it down and do the thing that I hate the most, which is small sample size, single game, individual, uh, plus minus, not plus minus, but, uh, well, yeah, I hate that. But actually breaking down Duke shooting, I did that, and I hate doing that. But this game says it more than anything with somebody who's who's 7'6". So Duke was uh, 14 of 41 with him on the floor when he was off the floor. And he was on the floor uh, 25 minutes. He was off the floor 13. Duke was 14 of 41 with him on, 16 of 26 with him off. They were 6 of 18 from deep with him on, 4 of 7 with him off. The layups, they were... um, Four of 12 uh, from um, on, on layups, then eight of nine with him off. Four of 12 with him on, eight of nine with him off. And over the four of 12, three, Zion went three of five inside seven minutes left in the game. So before that, they were like one of nine. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, it just goes to show, I mean, this is absurd. Duke would have won by 17 um, with him off. And, again, these single play like, really small sample, single player. I hate doing that. But in some cases, there are outliers. So when you go through and see how Duke played and the way they played, saying, oh, they were just chucking, like, yeah. I mean, it's it's as simple as you can't teach seven sex. Yeah, you absolutely can. Um, yeah, I think that when Duke lost to Syracuse at home, it's kind of the same reaction that happened on this one. Um people freaked out and said, Oh my God, Duke lost. But like, like you were saying that it was the perfect storm. Just, just like yesterday was the perfect storm for Duke, because I mean, you're not going to run into another seven foot six center. You're not going to run into kind of the emotional situation that, that comes with Johnny Dawkins coaching against his alma mater and his mentor and Aubrey Dawkins. who grew up, you know, playing shooting in the gyms at Duke and has the game of his life on that stage. So, um, no, I mean, that's that's the single worst matchup, I think, that, that could be possible for Duke in the NCAA tournament. 
um, because everything that UCF did really well is something that really uh, damaged Duke. And, and like you were saying, as far as the the press and, and all of that, as Duke's press was not able to generate some of the the things that we normally see that the, their press generates. I know they got a few turnovers. There were a few turnovers uh, right at the end of the first half when uh, Coach K yelled out to, to Trey Jones to switch to the 22, and uh, they immediately forced a turnover and a bucket. And at that point, you think Duke's kind of kind of going to cruise. They've got that that 44-36 lead. They've got Taco Fall in a little bit of foul trouble. But immediately, as soon as Taco Fall, it was kind of night and day as soon as he came in and out of that game. Like, Because I remember when he went out at the nine-minute mark, I tweeted that, hey, Duke has to find a way. If Duke wants to win this game, they're going to get about four minutes to go on some kind of burst here and break this thing wide open. And they did. They had a little bit of a burst, but obviously it wasn't a big enough burst to, to break that open. So I'm in total agreement with you as far as you don't want to read into too much of a, a one one man's one sample size game kind of thing. But that was absolutely the case yesterday where it was just one guy impacted a game in so many ways. And then his teammates around him were allowed to play in, in a certain way that was really able to hurt Duke because of one player. Yeah, I mean, it really was one player. And uh, as you were just saying, the end of the half, Taco went out at about 4.55. And I think from four minutes, I think it was like 4.02 to, I believe, something like 42 seconds left in the first half for about three and a half minutes. They just went off. They scored 14 points. They got uh, something like, I mean, just around that time, they got like 11 of their 14 points off turnovers. Goldwire got three steals in that time. I mean, that's why I kind of, I've nicknamed him and Trey when they pair up as, uh, as trade on Goldwire, because I mean, they're such like a, a real, a fun team. And yeah, obviously you know what you're going to get with Goldwire in terms of there's going to be lacking shooting and went the same thing with, uh, when you have Javin in there. The same thing when you have Bolden in there. But I think how many college teams do have fives that can shoot? Not many. So it, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's, it's not like Duke, if they just had a five, none of them can shoot. And I think that was what made uh, – it was, a, a you might say, obvious, but also smart decision by Dawkins. Cam was starting to heat up against that zone. Cam Reddish is the zone buster, and that's when uh, Johnny Dawkins switched out of the zone – and uh, play, played a much smarter defense. And Cam, he didn't really do much the, um, the rest of the game. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's just there were minor adjustments. But the three things I always say that Duke needs to generate energy is as many opportunities as possible in transition, offensive rebounds, and free throws. And they were only able to get... Yeah, yeah, Duke Duke was able to get some second chance points when Taco was out. Duke was able to get in transition when Taco was out, and the the only thing, as I was saying before, that I would not a concern, but just the first two games um, in the NCAA tournament, they haven't been able to really force that many turnovers, and that's vital for Duke. I mean, even something along the lines of their free throw shooting in close games. I mean, that's almost expected at this point, which is really awful to say because it's so str- – it's like – I call it the heart attack stat with uh, Duke's free throw shooting late in close games. It's actually tied right now between uh, R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson. R.J. Barrett, he had – let's see here. He had Florida State missed uh, the free throw with, I believe, five seconds left. The Florida State fumbled out of bounds, and 
that obviously led to the Cam Reddish game winner. He had Wake Forest, the second Wake Forest matchup, where he um, I think he went three of nine in the second half, missed his last five, a bunch of them coming under two minutes, and that obviously almost led to some really bad things. And then UNC, the UNC Part Three in the ACC tournament, where he missed that uh, late free throw. So he's, I mean, it's it's tough when you're not able to convert late free throws. Zion, he had the uh, Virginia Part One where he was pretty atrocious in the second half. He had um, Syracuse. He had the opportunity to win it at the end of the game. And now um, Central Florida. So each one, I mean, it's almost assumed that they're close games. They're going to brick free throws late. So it's at the beginning of the season, I was just like, oh, if they can just kind of get it together, get more experienced uh, late games. I don't think it's pressure, though. I don't think it's pressure. They're just not very good free throw shooters. And since they attack more, which I like in the second half with Zion, they're more of a second-half team, they're going to get to the line more. But unfortunately, it also means they're going to miss more. And, uh, yeah, when you, with yesterday, it was uh, – they, they got lucky um, that RJ was able to get that offensive rebound. So, yeah, free throws, it's obviously a concern. But at this point, it's I don't see it changing. Yeah, that's exactly right. It goes to your point about – all right. So, yeah, to that point, it, it kind of goes back to that thing about the reaction of, of the world that, holy crap, Duke almost lost and we're drawing conclusions from one game as the free throw shooting is. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly what Duke has been all year. It's not going to get better. I mean, there's a chance for a one off great game, but I think the, the worst chance for Duke is that there's going to be a one off bad game, like a really bad game. And Mike Krzyzewski said it early in the season um, that <laughs> He just pointed out that we were awful. We were awful shooting free throws. Uh, I forget which particular game it was, but it was. And that doesn't really stand for just one particular game. They're, they were just a bad free throw shooting team, but it also kind of helps that you are a really good offensive rebounding team. You have Zion Williamson, and you've got R.J. Barrett, who's actually, um, I think rebounding has kind of been the underrated thing about his game this year. Is he's really been a double-double threat every time out because he, he uses his length and his athleticism so well and his anticipation. And obviously he made a, uh, a little bit of a superstar play yesterday and um, he got away with, well, I think some people think that he got away. I've watched the replay several times and I don't think it was particularly blatant, but he, he did what good players do in that situation. And you give a guy just a little bit of a nudge in the back to, to get them pushed under the basket and get that rebound. Yeah. I mean the, the free throws, it's seven out of nine close games have been severely impacted. The other, the I mentioned the six. The seventh was actually Gonzaga on the other end. Gonzaga kind of crapped themselves with that. I mean, I've mentioned this on kind of many pods. It's just kind of, each time it happens, I just want to go over the fact that it's not new. It's, and it sucks that you almost know what's going to happen every game, which I can't remember a team besides maybe a, a Cal's Memphis team against Kansas. Do you remember that? I think it was 2008. They were horrific uh, from the free throw line. He always said they'll make them when it counts, and then they didn't. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to catch up. I mean, it will catch up with Duke at some point, and maybe that was the time uh, yesterday that bad free throw shooting caught up with them, and it just happened that uh, they were bailed out by their offensive rebounding yet again because – and, and that was one of the things that I, I talked in the locker room with Trey Jones about, and we've seen it time and again. It seems like every team that wins a national championship, except for UNC in 09 when they were just completely dominant, runs into something like this in the tournament. 
UNC ran into it in 2017 when they're losing to Arkansas late in the second round in, in Greenville, South Carolina. And there was nothing particularly exciting about that Arkansas team. They don't, I don't think that they really have any uh, pros or anything like that. The Arkansas just beat them that day. So you're going to run into stuff like that. And your Achilles heel is going to catch up with you briefly at some point in this tournament. And uh, fortunately for Duke, I'm, I'm not sure if they're completely out of the woods on that one yet. Yeah, I mean, the thing that has raised their ceiling for me in March is their defense because they haven't had that um, really extending out, really attacking, um, and kind of just they're all over the passing lanes. Of course, it's going to potentially give up angles, but it's not the same thing as, I mean, a lot of these recent teams, they can, once they start allowing teams to gain momentum, their defense just kind of craps the bed. And you saw like South Carolina, you thought Arizona in 2011 was a crazy second half. South Carolina ran all over them. That was, I think that's like the most efficient second half I've ever seen in efficiency. Because, I mean, it wasn't like efficient. They were running all over Duke. But uh, yeah, I mean, this team has the defense, which can step up when the offense isn't going. And the fact that UCF was still able to, to be efficient against Duke at some point. Yeah, I think we, we've gone over enough just to say, give them props. It's a crazy outlier game, and I don't think it exposed anything new. And uh, I, I will say that with the calls, I mean, I, I watched him. I didn't really see much. I, I'd i like to think I'm not biased. I mean, there, there's calls that are going to go against both teams in every game when it's Absolutely. when it when it's near the, when it's towards the end of a game it's more noticeable but taco fall he put both his arms right down on zion that would have been his fourth foul and uh, cam reddish i mean he was called for a foul in the first half on a, on, Daw- on dawkins his three-pointer i mean there's just you can nitpick everything and i definitely did not think it was blatant if even a foul-worthy call on some people say Zion pushed off, some people say RJ did on the offensive rebound. I don't know. I mean, I think that's a let them play kind of thing, but who knows? Um, so in terms of individual players, Javin Delore and Jordan Goldwire really stepped up. It's Javin with Bolden out, I think he he's played smarter, but with the same energy because you couldn't trust him earlier in the season. His foul rate was just ridiculous. Like as soon as he'd come in the game, he'd he'd foul like five times. I was joking before the game. It, Taco Fall is such a bad free throw shooter. Just tell Javin to just attack him, and it, it's going to be like the time of his life. That's what he does anyway. But <laughs> um, no, he's been really smarter on the floor, and with Bolden, with with Bolden out. The Duke couldn't afford to lose him. So I think he's been awesome. He had a couple of great steals in the first half. I think he had something like two blocks and four offensive rebounds in the second half. Duke wouldn't have gotten another chance on that last possession if he didn't grab the offensive rebound. He's doing a lot of glue guy things that go into the radar. And with Goldwire, it all started. People think Louisville, Pittsburgh is the time. Pittsburgh, it was a, it was your typical letdown game coming off of uh, Syracuse, I believe. And they just had no, or I think that was after Virginia, something. But um, they had no energy at all. And he came in, and it was just immediate. And they were, I think it was like tied when he came in halfway through the first half, and it just made such a difference, especially without Trey. Then the zone press with Louisville, and it's been on from there. He reminds me a lot of Wojo, kind of a pest. So what, uh, what are your thoughts on those two players and their roles for Duke as kind of energy guys? 
Yeah, that's you're exactly right. And uh, I think Javin Delorier's performance yesterday really flies under the radar because he was just he had two points, he took one shot, but he had eight rebounds, and it felt like every one of those eight rebounds was a really big moment in the game. I think it was him that had the offensive rebound that set up Zion Williamson's drive to the basket there. Um, and, and he was fantastic, especially in, in being, being in that game late, because as you were saying, he is, he's been a guy that's been able, uh, that that's gotten himself into foul trouble a lot. And thought he was pretty judicious with the way that he attacked uh, taco fall. When he got the ball down there, there were several times that taco fall, if he catches the ball within five feet of the basket, he is going to dunk the basketball without a whole lot of effort. And there are a couple of times that Javin just let him go. And that was the absolute right play there because it, more likely than not, if Javin had fouled him, he's still going to convert that. And, you know, maybe he misses the free throw, but the, the important thing was keeping himself on the floor. So um, he was phenomenal yesterday with just his effort and keeping uh, taco fall away from the basket in a lot of cases. And, and like you said, uh, Jordan Goldwire has been, I mean, I think, if you had told people when Jordan Goldwire, this unknown kid who was about to go to Eastern Kentucky when he committed that he would be giving Duke major minutes in NCAA tournament games and helping to turn the tide in an ACC tournament game, I mean, that that's pretty shocking. And, and he knows his role. He understands his role. And he talked a lot yesterday about before the trip down, uh, Mike Krzyzewski took him aside and told him that guys aren't going to guard you and we're going to need you to hit some shots. So you have the green light to shoot the ball. You set your feet and you take the shot. And I know I was sitting directly across from the Duke bench yesterday. So after he hit that first three-pointer in, in the second half at a pretty key time, I know there was another one that he missed when he was completely wide open. And the first reaction of, of Coach K was he got off the bench and said, hey, that's a good shot. You shoot that every time you get your feet set. So uh, I think he's playing with a ton more confidence. And uh, that all started in the Louisville game when he really felt like he was a part of something there. Um, and that was all discovered by accident. That was one of the funny things of kind of discovered as I, I asked um, several players after the, hey, I mean, did you see a lot of that Trey Jones, Jordan Goldwire combo in practice? Were, were they just giving people hell out there? And they're like, no, we, we never really saw that because they were always matched up with each other on white team, blue team. And then just kind of came together in that Louisville game because Jordan Goldwire looked like he wanted to play in that game. And uh, Kay was looking for anything that he could throw a wall at the wall and make it stick and get some energy. And that, that kind of unleashed this secret weapon that Duke's got that no one really was expecting uh, a, a month and a half ago. That's kind of like when Brian Zubek learned to play basketball during his senior year. Yep. The big game against Maryland. Yeah. So, uh, Shout out to uh, Trade On Joldwire, that's what I call him. Yeah, I, th I think that it does give him a big lift, especially with the athletes they have able to get out in transition. You can literally outlet to any of Cam, Zion, uh, Trey, or RJ after a turnover, and they're off to the races. I think that is one thing that might be going a little under the radar in terms of how quickly they're able to get out and running they don't just have to find maybe trey or whoever the point guard is it like that like that has happened in past years now there's options just find somebody and they're off and running with alex o'connell he is interesting because with dukes their struggles from shooting you would think he'd be the guy especially since his biggest games have come against the zone uh, this season. He had some big games against Syracuse. He had a big game against uh, Notre Dame played zone. But his defense is not 
very trustworthy. And I think uh, when the, with the numbers, when you look into the numbers, it's fascinating because Duke's five-man, Zion has been in 12 five-man lineups. Over 10 minutes. Since the start of conference season. And he has insanely positive uh, net efficiency in 10 of them. The only two that he doesn't are with O'Connell. The, it, like, it, like, I don't know how you're on the court with Zion and it's looking and the numbers are turning out worse for the team. But it's obviously not a good sign when that happens. So it's, it's tough to see O'Connell being able to get time on the floor without Kay's trust in his defense because this team, they will generate energy off of their defense to make up for their struggles at time from offense. But do you think there might be maybe, I don't want to call it one shining moment, but a time, a, a team where you, you would think O'Connell can really step up and knock down some important shots for Duke? Yeah, that, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all at this point with this team. You know, I, I don't think there's a whole lot that would surprise me with this team, especially after we've seen Antonio Vrankovic come in and play the most important minutes of his entire career to help give Duke a win over Carolina in the ACC tournament. So um, I think that that's part of the thing with this Duke team is at some point they are going to need somebody that can knock down some shots. And, you know, over the next potentially four games, there's going to come a time where there could be foul trouble. There could be a lot of different things happening where, and there, there will also be a situation where players could be on the court where it's not necessarily a defensive liability to have Alex O'Connell out there. So I think if you see a situation where if Duke runs into a team where there's a guard with some offensive limitations, I mean, why not stick Alex O'Connell out there and let him put a couple up? He's, he shot the ball really well. He's been a better defender this year. He's still not a, a good defender. Thought, you know, in the Virginia game when he was playing a lot of minutes, he, you know, he handled himself relatively well on defense considering the circumstance. He obviously wasn't a stopper or anything, but it wasn't like Virginia was able to come down and attack him on every single possession. So, you know, I think uh, th there's a place for Alex O'Connell at some point down the line that the and I think there's a there and honestly I'm shocked that there wasn't a place for Antonio Vrankovic to just see a couple of minutes against Taco Fall and get out there and, and be physical with him and but of course that's because Duke was trying to run run offensively and, and it was having a hard time doing that. But I'm surprised that Vrankovic didn't get in there to just play a couple of minutes, especially with both uh, Bolden and Doria dealing with fouls. Yeah, I mean, the three games, FSU, Notre Dame, and uh, FSU 1, Notre Dame, and uh, Virginia 2, those games, they were 55% from three. And all the other games since Texas Tech, including Texas Tech, they sh they're 25% shooters. So obviously, yeah, I mean, somebody who can hit is going to serve a valuable purpose. So, um, I mean, I call them jokingly the uh, Giannis and, and Tedekumpo of college basketball because they're so they're elite, they're highly skilled, but man, they cannot shoot, but they find a way. So, <laughs> Jack White, he's somebody that with my season preview pod that I did, I said if they kind of have a death lineup, it could actually be Jack White. At, at the four and Zion at the five, if he can prove the ability to hit. And for the first 13 games, he was fantastic. You look back at Texas Tech, he might have been um, the star in the second half, at least with what he did. He was able to guard, um, oh, I forget his name, but the star for Texas Tech, unbelievable player. Jared Culver, yeah. Exactly. He, he, he guarded Culver, not just help. 
he was isolated on Culver over and over and over and shut him down most of the time. He hit, Duke was some like 0-14 from three that game. Jack White hit two big bombs. He was so big, and that's before the freshman got comfortable. He was helping him kind of feel um, the learning process out. And Clemson, he was still really making big plays. And the Syracuse game, it's, it's just you wonder how much that affected him mentally um, in terms of his shooting because no matter how – you can't have everyone on the floor not be able to shoot. But especially when that's something he has to provide. But I think he's somebody who, if he can get on the floor and knock down a couple, that's something that Duke could really use because it's you wouldn't have to worry about his defense as much. He has missed the last two games with uh, a hamstring. I don't know anything more besides that. Do you know how severe that hamstring is and uh, whether it's possible he might be back for Virginia Tech on Friday? Yeah, I think it's very possible that we're going to see him again. If not Friday, I, I think we're definitely going to see him again in the tournament. Um, we were talking a little bit in the locker room the other day. Um, he, he injured himself in the Carolina game. Uh, no correction, it was the Florida State game. He was going up uh, to try to get a, a rebound on a box out um, on a free throw, and he just kind of overextended himself and uh, didn't even realize that for a couple of plays. He, was, he said he was running up and down the court, and it just started feeling terrible. Um, but he said it, it's not a, a complete tear or anything like that. He's, uh, feeling pretty good. I think it, like if this weekend had been the final four, you would have seen him try to give it a go, um, said his lateral movements fine. But the problem that he, he kind of has right now is just fully extending the leg, which is, I guess what you would expect when you injure hamstring. So, um, but I, I think you're going to see him at some point and, and I agree. I think we we've seen the best of Jack White and we've seen the worst and, if he can even be somewhere in the middle of that, he's a, a really big benefit for Duke and what they need to do over these next few weeks if they, if they want to cut down the nets. And he gives them an experienced guy that's going to play physical defense. He's going to rebound. He's going to be in the right place. He doesn't make mistakes except for that one he made against Wake Forest. <laughs> I, I jokingly kind of brought that up yesterday when we were just talking in the locker room. I was like, man, that was just kind of like the Wake Forest game. And he's like, oh, we don't need to bring that game up. <laughs> um so, but yeah, uh, if he, he's rebounded from that situation that he had that started in the Syracuse game when he went over 10 for three and ended up missing 20, 28 straight, I think it was 27, 28, maybe. Um, and then he cam- comes out and hits three straight to, to get himself back. Right. So I think, uh, you know, he's, he's very good at dealing with the, the adversity that he's gone through. And I know yesterday was, was really tough for him. I just kind of mentioned that while we were standing next to the, the Zion show in the locker room is like, it just, it was, it, it was terrible to be able to watch that and not play. So he's going to be back at some point in the next couple of weeks. If, um, if Duke advances that far. Yeah. It's just nice to have options because I think, it, I mean, it almost feels like false hope at this point because of Kay's history of making it seem like they're going to have a bench and then shortening up to, uh, pretty much of slim to none in the NCAA tournament, but at least it gives options like uh, Bolden. It's great to have him back. He wasn't the best matchup against central Florida, but it's nice to know he's there if available. And the next game, he might be a better matchup than Javin. So it's good to have options, especially when O'Connell, if he's not going to play any minutes in some games, then Jack whites out all of a sudden, you might say you Duke might be in foul trouble. You're wondering where this big bench went. And then you look back on Kay's history, this shouldn't be surprising. But again, it's nice to have 
options. So um, I would say the last X's and O's thing, do you think uh, zone is mistaken? Just anybody should just zone against Duke? You have to have the personnel. The same way Duke had the personnel last year to be a good zone team. Uh, do you think teams are more likely to play zone or really pack it in? Virginia Tech, they've used a lot of uh, matchup zone in the past um, with some man-to-man, but they really sink off. And uh, uh, Louisville, they used um, they used the pack line similar to Virginia at times. So the teams are doing different things against Duke. I think uh, Virginia Tech's going to back off, pack it in more. But uh, how if you were going to play Duke, and let's say you did have the personnel to zone, or you know, how, just how how would you strategize against Duke? Yeah, I would do exactly. Um... I don't. I don't know if I would do exactly what UCF did yesterday, as far as um, playing their guards just so so far off on on Trey Jones and stuff like that, because I think a lot of that was there were times that Trey Jones could have made some better decisions with as to how he attacked the basket rather than just putting up a jump shot because he was open. I know there were several times that he got matched up with Taco Fall straight up uh, late in the game. Uh, when Taco had four fouls and, you know, you go to the basket, you, you try to make something happen or you make a pass in the lane. So I'm not sure I'd play my guys that far off, but I'm I'm absolutely playing Duke with the zone um, with the with the right to change my mind early on. If my team decides that they're not going to rebound the ball the way that they should and find bodies every time the, the shot goes up. But there there's no reason not to play Duke in zone. I mean, you, if you play Duke and man, you're just asking to get beat. So. Um, I know some people will say zone is for cowards, this, that, and the other, but if you want to win, I mean, I'd rather be a coward and move on in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I I did think Zion was really making great decisions um, against the zone at the high post uh, towards the end of the first half. And again, that was a lot of it without Taco, and UCF did change their defense in the second half. But I I did think Zion uh, made some great decisions, and R.J. Barrett, he did the same against Syracuse besides that first game when the legs just died. So Duke has proven they're able to make good decisions, and and Cam Reddish can be the zone buster. I mean, Eastern Michigan, Cam was out for the second half. Stetson was just a total... I mean, Eastern Michigan was a mismatch, and Stetson, they played zone. That was a mismatch. But uh, B.C., I mean, they were just horrific in, in, in half court, especially in the first half. Um, so that would make me worried against zone. Notre Dame was the outlier. Uh, the Syracuse, the second and third matchups, there were some bright moments, but at the same time, still pretty bad half court offense. Wake played a little matchup in the first time against Duke, but there really hasn't been a whole ton of zone. So, yeah, I would absolutely try that. Um, so uh, Duke is headed to... DC to play uh, Virginia Tech. I think they're fortunate Maryland didn't make it, not because Maryland would present a tough matchup if they did meet in the Elite Eight, just because Maryland fans hate Duke and they would <laughs> stay there and just shout some um, some 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 uh, mean things at the players. Let's just say that. Um, so uh, yeah, I think they avoided just an annoying kind of uh, factor right there. But it is a strength because uh, Justin Robinson's from Manassas, which is uh, Northern Virginia, part of the DMV. And while Javin's from uh, Virginia, it's pretty far away. 
So uh, I've actually, uh, I, n- I never tweeted any Duke player or anything, but I did make an exception. I tweeted a Quinn Cook, Mr. DMV himself, asking him to uh, buy a few thousand tickets, call up some buddies, take them to the Capital uh, One Arena, and uh, kind of just pack that arena, get some Duke fans in there, because who knows? Uh, it could end up a Virginia Tech type of support. I, d- I don't know if that'll happen, but it can get crazy. I remember seeing George Mason beat uh, UConn in 2006. That's something I'll never forget. So that, that could that could be fun um, to play over there. But again, thank goodness there won't be too many Maryland fans there. And again, I am a Maryland fan myself, so it's not an insult to them. But they they can they they are very passionate. I'll say that. Yeah, it's um that that game is in Virginia Tech's uh, neck of the woods and. You know, it being the D.C. area and Blacksburg being kind of a rural area, there's a ton of Virginia Tech people up there. But also there's a ton of Duke people between the, the D.C. kind of New York corridor there. So it should be a, a pretty good sized Duke crowd. But my expectation would be that Virginia Tech is going to be um, is going to have the biggest fan base there. And then everybody else, of course, will be rooting against Duke. So um, it should be a great atmosphere. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, K as a one seed. Here's an interesting narrative. He's four of the five times he's lost in the Sweet 16 as a one seed. It's been to the five seed. Is that something you take seriously? Because Virginia Tech's a five seed. Uh, not particularly. No, I, I take it more seriously because Buzz Williams is a, a really good coach and he's got his team playing great. And Justin Robinson's back on the floor and Kerry Blackshear is a, a pretty doggone good big man. I I'd be more worried about that than the seeding and. Um, I know the first matchup was when Zion Williamson was out, so it's kind of tough to take a whole lot from that. And, and Justin Robinson was out for Virginia Tech, too. And I thought Virginia Tech did a pretty good job of adjusting their team during Robinson's absence, um, especially based on the fact that I was at that unfortunate uh, Virginia Tech-NC State game that was 47-24 to in Justin Robinson's first one out. So um, they uh, they certainly got a lot better from there. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, Blackshear, he's... Not He doesn't have the strength of Wendell Carter, but I almost consider him Wendell Carter light. Makes a really smart player, makes great decisions, and just he can do everything on the court. Now with Justin Robinson, it's not like a Kyrie situation where he's coming back and they have to switch everything. He's been with the team for three years. They know their role, so it's not all of a sudden everyone is struggling to readjust. I think they are very comfortable with him back at point guard, and I think – uh, Alexander Walker got more confidence as a scorer with him out and as a decision maker Blackshear does what he does and uh, yeah I mean that should be an interesting game the 13 times K's been a one seed he's actually only faced the two seed in the region uh, three times 92 98 2015 so they might play Michigan State but that is an interesting stat I saw to I said that before the tournament to just don't assume they're going to play Michigan State in the Elite Eight, but everything's gone pretty much chalk so far, so it might it might happen. It, yeah, it's it's been a weird tournament like that. I, I know all of the upsets that I picked in the first couple of rounds haven't really panned out, but um, yeah, my expectation is that, that Duke is going to beat Virginia Tech because it's really hard to beat Duke twice in a row, especially um, with Zion Wolf, even though Duke nearly won that game in Blacksburg without him, so... Um, but the thing is, is that, that teams from North Carolina, Duke and North Carolina, just do not lose to Tom Izzo's teams, no matter how good they are. So I guess there's a, there's some solace in that fact for Duke fans going into that one. Yeah, I actually didn't know about Carolina. I do remember that 
two years ago, Matt Norlander wrote the Gorilla Stat article. That's what he calls it when there's just a stat that keeps on going. It was 11-1 and at that point, K versus Izzo. Now it's 13-1. and So, yeah, I didn't realize uh, Carolina had also had a, uh, a big advantage against Izzo. Um, Duke has played 8 out of the 15 teams in the Sweet 16. They have an 8-4 and record against them, 2-0 and against UVA and Florida State, 1-0 and against Kentucky, Texas Tech, Auburn. They are 1-2 and against Carolina and 0-1 and against Gonzaga and Virginia Tech. They will play Virginia Tech, chance to play, an opportunity to play Gonzaga, Texas Tech, and, or Florida State in the semifinal and all the other teams in the final. So they have definitely had experience against many of these teams. Uh, Case four wins away from 100. Do you think the players know that? Um, Doubt it. I, I highly doubt and it. Let me just say, four, uh, 100 in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I, I highly doubt that that's something that's even come up. Um, they're just so so locked in on... It's interesting because <laughs> as, as a writer, you're pretty locked in at this time of the year. Like, I, I saw the Duke game, and I saw the Duke games, but I beyond that, I did not really see a whole lot of el- what else was going on. And that, that's a stat that I was completely unaware of, even though I've been covering the team since November. So, yeah, I don't think that's something that they know, but I would imagine that as we get there, if we get there to that Monday night, that that's something that will definitely come up and become a storyline, and we'll ask the players and coaches about it, and they'll, they'll completely uh, shoot it down. <laughs> yeah, I think if he makes the Final Four, that'll also pass him. Uh, from John Wooden, so that's something. But I mean, I th- I, obviously, you just want to concentrate, even though fans and writers, we have nothing to do with it. But uh, on the one game uh, coming up, um, let, let's see. Uh, LSU would be interesting in the Elite Eight. That that would be the JJ Redick revenge game. He, they ended JJ Redick's career along with Sheldon, uh, Sean Dockery, and Lee Malkioni. So that'd be nice to get revenge, even if it was a while back. Um, the last two subjects. Joey Baker, people are really, really all about thinking he's going to have a Grayson type of thing, which I don't like if you if you think that is a possibility um, that that's fine. But I will say there's no chance because it's not the same situation at all with Grayson. First of all, Grayson was a top recruit. People think he came out of nowhere. He'd been getting over 20 minutes in a bunch of games. Coach K, whatever it is, garbage time or not. He's not going to give 20 minutes to a player in a game unless that player is kind of um, uh, interviewing for more time in a way. And he he had tons of great performances, show what he can do on offense. It was just about proving he could also hang on defense. I think even before, it was like the game before the ACC tournament against Wake, I think he had over 20 minutes. He scored like 15 points. That game did not come out of nowhere. I look back. That's the fun thing about Twitter is you go back and see what you said. I actually predicted Grayson's breakout would be against Gonzaga. Or not breakout because he had already broken out, but the breakout in legit, real, um, important minutes. Because I thought Duke was going to speed up Gonzaga, and the fact that they didn't showed me they were really championship worthy because they really ground Gonzaga down to a halt. So, But Joey Baker... I mean, he's like, you have a guy, when they played Miami, Dejan Vasilovic, who won't take anyone off the dribble, he looked at Joey Baker, you could almost see his eyes light up, and all of a sudden he's Kobe Bryant, try, like, attacking Baker off the dribble. I mean, if you have Dejan Vasilovic um, attacking you off the dribble, I mean, yes, Baker could provide some range, 
And who knows? If he comes in, gets hot, and K rides the wave, maybe. But other than that, maybe a team that just, they, they're not a threat at all on offense, and you just, you can kind of, you don't have to worry about him, and maybe he can just provide range. But either way, I, number one, I don't see it as a Grayson thing. And number two, I would be shocked if he does have a game where he makes a big impact. Yeah, my feeling is that uh, barring Duke has some kind of surprising blowout, we've seen the last of Joey Baker this year, um, which is an interesting thing because a lot of people have a lot of feelings about the fact that um, he played in the, what, 27th game of the year for the first time. That was something we brought up in the locker room the other day. And yet again, he said, hey, that that was what I wanted. He said, I was I was I've been lobbying the coaches all year uh, to play. And a situation came up that kind of allowed me to get in there and play. And that, that's what I wanted to do. So I asked him, he's like, I've I've been, you know, texting the coaches and calling the coaches. And I was like, uh, I think John Shire particularly is the guy is his kind of his guy on the on the staff. So. He's like, I was like, did you annoy them? Were they ever just like, dude, we got it. We understand. And he's like, I'm sure they were, but uh, he's like, they were always receptive. And finally that moment came. But yeah, just, just like you said, it's uh, Joey Baker could go out there and knock down some shots, but there's, he's not, I mean, he's Alex O'Connell basically with a little bit more size and maybe a little bit more of a knockdown shooter, but his defense just isn't where it needs to be at this point. And you know, he wasn't even likely going to play until uh, the situation necessitated that a few weeks ago. So I, I think he's, you know, really enjoyed this. And I, I don't think there's a a problem where people tried to make their make it out to be a problem that he was like pissed off or something that, that he had to come in and play and burn a red shirt season because of, I mean, this is a guy who has NBA potential. And if he had come into Duke next season with the class that he was supposed to, he was a top 30 recruit. So he's a guy that's planning on being a professional. And the fact that maybe he doesn't get a year or whatever later on, I, I don't think that that bothers him in any way based on our conversation with him. Yeah. I mean, Grace in his second game at Duke, I believe he scored 18. So it's just a different situation, but I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. All right. Last, uh, last, Kind of fun topic, and then and then one quick bonus. Marilyn Payne, who covers Duke for um, oh I'm I'm sorry, my can you help me out? Who does she cover Duke for, or the ACC for? Yeah, she used to be with WRL, but she has since left there. Okay, so she made a poll asking if people want a Duke UNC final, <laughs> and the result came back overwhelmingly no. Um, with most of those who responded saying it would be too stressful <laughs> so am i missing something i mean as someone who grew up in the bat bleep crazy world of maryland fans who still uh, i still consider maryland my second team along with uh towson my alma mater who i i rep very meekly uh, and i understand maryland's not even close to the same but why would you not want that crazy high intensity matchup and i guess some say it's to kind of quote unquote be able to have that unanswerable question of who would win. It's just better to keep going forever without it, it actually happening because if it happens, then you can't ever wonder anymore. But I don't know, man. I mean, I lived in North Carolina for a couple of years. I've seen it. I didn't grow up in it, so I'm not going to pretend to live it. But what, what is your opinion as someone who grew up in Durham, you would have a much better grasp on that. Why do you, would you want it? And uh, why not? If so, um, I'm kind of torn on that topic, and that's that's been a really big topic of conversation since Carolina started coming on, and 
Zion was going to be coming back into the lineup is it's kind of started coming together again. Like, Hey, they, they might be on this collision course. And then the brackets came out and Holy crap, there it is. They're both number one seeds and they'd meet in the national championship game. So um, to set the stage as to what, what people talk about and act like around here because of the rivalry, um, there was a particular, I think it was a summer when I was, I don't know, when, younger at some point maybe late middle school high school something like that um there were these two twin brothers up the street that were uh they're brothers of my good friend that lived up the street and you know we always played video games played basketball all that stuff um it's the middle of the summer and somehow a duke carolina basketball conversation starts on just like a june afternoon and before you know it things have come to blows between the twin brothers one of which is a duke fan one of which is a carolina fan because the Duke fan is laughing and making fun of the fact that Roy Williams did not want to come back to Carolina at that time, and they instead got Matt Doherty and the whole I don't give a shit about North Carolina thing. So one of the brothers pushes the other brother into a glass door and breaks uh, a couple of the panes of the windows out. So that's just in a June uh, conversation between brothers. So imagine what happens to this area in the lead up to a Duke North Carolina championship game. Like when I say anarchy, I'm not even like joking that it would just be a complete disaster. There would be the bonfires would be crazy. Both fan bases are going to burn things down that night, no matter what there's going to be fights and bars. And then, as you said, the argument, the, the question is answered for who knows how long, because just see how long it's taken us to even get a, a really good shot at this. It's only the 91 Final Four was the only time they got to the Final Four together. So if a team were to beat the other in the national championship game, just think about every argument between fans and all the trash talk for the rest until it ever gets to happen again is, uh, we beat you five straight times, blah, 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 another ACC championship. Okay, we beat you for the 2019 national championship. Who gives a shit? Nobody cares. <laughs> Do you ever uh, read the book to hate like this is to love forever? Will Blythe. I have not read it, but I have heard good things. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's actually funny. Uh, one of my good friends growing up, he went to, he somehow hit, you could say the jackpot or whatever the opposite, the polar opposite is of the jackpot. He went to North Carolina, 2001 to 2004. Okay. So we saw NCAA second round, missed the tournament eight and 20. 19 and 16 NIT quarters and 1911 in Roy's first season NCAA second round. Those are the only four years I believe that they went four straight years without making the Sweet 16, and it was just it, it was crazy because I went to a game at that time. The Dean Dome was just it, it there wasn't many people there. I saw Chris Bosh. He hit a game winning shot, and it was just a very odd type of atmosphere. But I thought that was uh, funny that he basically. Went there the four worst possible years he could have, or the, four, or the worst four years stretch. So, um, all right, final question is: Is my guy Mike Buckmeyer going to see uh, playing time in the NCAA tournament? Say yes, even if you're lying. May give me hope. <laughs> um, for the benefit of, of Duke, is he fans, starting? Would, He's going to start, want, right? Want to be really excited about something? I'll say Mike Mike Buckmeyer gets on the the court during a, a Final Four game that Duke's blowing someone out, but um, in reality, no. Because I don't think that, you know, I don't think that we're going to see a blowout the rest of the way unless Duke is able to blow out Virginia Tech, which 
I might have had my brain poisoned because I was at that Carolina Virginia Tech game in Chapel Hill when uh, the heels just absolutely demolished them and ran them off the floor and made them look like, oh man, this Virginia Tech team is not a top 25 team after all. But obviously they've rebounded nicely and they are a top 25 team and they're really good. And I am not expecting a blowout at all in that, that game Friday night at all. But, um, you know, it, w- it would be nice to see just from the perspective of the story, that would be cool to write. It'd be cool to see Buckmeyer actually on the floor with Zion Williamson instead of just hanging out in the locker room. Hashtag get Buck in here. Uh, oh, well, one thing I, I did forget, and this is related um, to you specifically, Trey Jones, he's kind of been a golden child this season. Basically, everyone loves him, can't do anything wrong. This is the really the first time this season he's, he's facing adversity with some not praising him for everything. And no matter how important basketball is in his potential career and the relationships there, they're probably made up just the relationships throughout his life. I'd be surprised if basketball is the priority right now, even with Duke in the tournament, considering what his mother, Debbie, is going through. You wrote a fantastic piece on that. And can you just give some insight into Trey's relationship with his mom, just as well as the entire Jones family and and what they're experiencing right now with uh, Tyus and everyone. Yeah, that was, um, I just kind of, I I follow all the different players on Instagram to see what they're talking about on any given day or whatever. And it's always fun to uh, be inspired by all the fun the college kids are having. And that's actually how I found my dinner tonight is uh, several of the the players uh, have posted about this, this food truck in town that's become popular among both Duke and Carolina players called Dankery. So anyway, that aside, Um, Trey Jones, yeah, he posted that his mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer earlier in the month. Um, Both he and Tyus posted the same thing. It was kind of a a family statement that they wanted to put out. Um, Sounds like uh, they caught it pretty early, and it sounds like they're pretty optimistic about about how things are going to go. But, of course, you know, as optimistic as you want to be, if one of your family members has breast cancer or any type of cancer, that's – obviously going to be the top of mind thing for you for the next month no matter where whether you're chasing a national championship or whatever you're doing so i can't imagine just the amount of stress especially in this situation when you're on a college basketball team that's being covered more as a cultural phenomenon than a college basketball team dealing with that and the fact that your mom is home and unable to travel for the games like she always has and the relationship uh, with with her is and I'm, I'm still learning more about this but essentially you know it, it's not the typical relationship where it was just the dad that was uh, the, the guy taking them out to the basketball court and working with them um, early on both Trey and Tyus uh, their mom Debbie played basketball so she coached them and, and she was with them and traveling to games and AAU tournaments so they've always kind of been on the court together and in the arena together and uh, it's a close family. Uh, Trey said that he went to every single uh, t- of Tyus's NCAA tournament games in 2015. So um, back at the ACC championship game, uh, Debbie was unable to make it down, but t- Trey's uh, aunt and uncle and his grandmother were there. Uh, the grandmother lives I- at home with them. So they're, they're a tight knit family. And, um, you know, it, it would be one heck of a story if, if they were able to get Trey back home to, to Minneapolis to play the final four in his hometown with his mom in the stands. That's uh, th- thanks for sharing. It's a lot of, that's a lot of great info there because it's, I mean, you got to remember these are 18 to 22 year olds. It's more than just basketball. I think uh, we think of college basketball, almost like professional, especially at Duke, but, and 
there is a lot to say about kind of the gray area with that with the NCAA, but we are not going to talk about any of that right now because that's always an interesting topic right there. Brent, I really appreciate you joining me. For, for everyone else, I, I am going to do at least a Virginia Tech preview, and likely, hopefully, I'm going to just do a big Duke breakdown where I just, I'm going to treat it like nobody has watched Duke. I am going to break down statistically and just strategy X's nose and just an overall kind of scouting report on each player because I think that's cool. That's what I would like to see uh, other uh, who cover other teams teams do just to get a good feel besides just the basic stuff that you can read from a box score. So I'm going to hopefully get that out, but definitely a Virginia Tech preview. But you heard so much great info from Brant today. Brant, uh, where can everyone follow your information uh, for during the week and uh, for the upcoming Sweet 16? I am pretty active on Twitter uh, at Brant GNR, uh, Greensboro News and Record there, not Guns and Roses, as some people have pointed out. Um, and uh, at Greensboro.com is where we are located on the World Wide Web or ACC Extra, ACC with the letter extra.com. And um, we'll have all kinds of stuff from Duke and, and both North Carolina and looking at some of the opponents that Duke could run into. And I'll do my annual ranking the Sweet 16 uh, teams in order of who's most likely to win it all. And I'll probably be wrong because I remember, I think I wrote uh, Loyal of Chicago was uh, the 16th ranked team in the Sweet 16 last year. We all saw how that worked out. So I'm just a guy writing about sports, and I probably know less than you, but somehow I got paid to do it, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get these, again, one-game sample size, single elimination. Anything can happen. That's what makes the NCAA tournament so different and just so amazing and so stressful at the same time. So if it's a close game, expect some Duke missed free throws at the end to make us crazy. But it should be a good one versus Virginia Tech. I'll be back with more. Brant, thanks so much for joining me. It was a lot of fun. No problem, man. Anytime. Hope to come back. All right. And Duke fans, I will be talking to you soon.